Welcome to Sermons from Bailey Road. You are about to hear a sermon given at Bailey Road Baptist Church. Bailey Road is a small Bible-believing church located in North Jackson, Ohio, and is pastored by Pastor Aaron Smith. We are dedicated to serving the Lord through our people and through our teaching. We hope you are enlightened by today's message, and again, welcome to Bailey Road Baptist Church. Glad to see you tonight. Hope you had a good day. It was beautiful weather. Hope uh, if you had to work or you're off, whatever the case may be, that you had a good day. I uh, thinking about what revival is. I think revival, the way I like to uh, define it for our church, is it's a renewal of of interest in spiritual things, and that's why uh, revival meeting is is very helpful. I think it's it's not that I'm telling you anything that you haven't heard before necessarily, or that your pastor doesn't tell you on a regular basis, but it's just uh, another voice saying the same thing, trying to renew and revive interest in spiritual things once again. We all need that spiritual boost shot in the arm, and I'm thankful for it. You know, I got saved in a revival meeting, and I'm, I'm very grateful for meetings like this. I got saved in a weeknight, uh, an evangelist that most of you probably have never heard of, a man named Don Short, and uh, he preached the gospel, and, and I got saved, and I'm so thankful that I did. And so I value revival meetings, but I also know that the revival meeting has kind of changed its face over the years. Um, you know, you used to hear names of evangelists who would travel the country, put up tents, have widespread meetings, and uh, people would invite their friends and neighbors, and people would come, and they would be saved in, in large-scale measures, and it's a little different than that today, uh, but I think really the, in, the calling it a revival really appeals to saved people already. That's why I define it that way, a renewed interest in spiritual things, because we can get used to it. We can get settled in, and uh, sometimes the Lord needs to stir me up and stir you up, and so I hope that he'll do that this week. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7, and in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to kind of continue with the story that we began last night. If you'll remember, the nation of Israel made a big mistake. They trusted in a religious symbol rather than in God. They trusted in the Ark of the Covenant rather than trusting the God of the Covenant, uh, Jehovah himself. And so that Ark was taken by the Philistines. And when it was taken, great distress came upon the nation of Israel, so much so that Phineas's wife gave birth to a son and named him Ichabod because the glory had departed uh, from the nation of Israel. And so I want to talk about the continuance of that story, and we find that in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7. All right, I'll let you remain seated tonight. We've done some standing and sitting, and so we'll remain seated tonight because I'm going to read the entire chapter. And so follow along with me as we take a look at that tonight. Look at, look at verse 1. It says, And the men of kirjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in kirjath Jerem that the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods, and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and 
fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together into Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. That's very interesting to me, that they were attacking them, and Samuel said, we've got to keep the service going. Don't worry about that. Very, very uh, interesting. In verse 9, And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came unto Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath, and the coasts thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites, and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. I want to focus our attention on verse 12 in particular where he says that he set up a stone and called it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. We'll concentrate on some of our study in this chapter tonight. I want to preach to you about raise your Ebenezer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you'd help us to be engaged and that you would bless us as we seek your face. Help us to do what we sang about. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us to put out the cares and the distractions of the world and help us to focus on your truth tonight. I pray that we would be sensitive to apply it to ourselves and I pray that you would do a work in our heart and our life and we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. In 1755, there was a 20-year-old apprentice to a barber. This apprentice, he uh, went to hear George Whitfield, the great evangelist, to preach I know there's been some controversy with George Whitfield and his tactics. Some like him, some don't. But this man went to hear George Whitfield, and upon hearing George Whitfield, he got saved. He then became a preacher, and he wrote a hymn entitled, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We sing that in our church from time to time. I would imagine you might sing that in this church as well. I particularly like the verse that says this, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. I know I feel that way. I do love the Lord. I love the Lord Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my God. But I have a tendency in my heart to wander away from Him. And I think that that's a great prayer that says, Please, God, bind my heart like a fetter to you. I don't want to wander from you. I want my heart to be sealed to your service. It's a wonderful prayer and it's a wonderful hymn. But there's one curious line in the second verse. And if you're not very familiar with the Word of God... It might be a little confusing to you. It starts off saying this, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And that's what that song says. And since many do not understand the meaning of the word Ebenezer, or they do not 
uh, are, are, do not have familiarity with this particular chapter, what has happened is some hymn books have changed that line from here I raise mine Ebenezer to here I raise my sign of victory. Now that's not a terrible interpretation there, and that's fine that it fits within the music, but I would just submit to you by way of introduction that we would all understand and appreciate our hymns better if we were better acquainted with the Bible. And uh, that's why I like some of those old songs that are timeless in their character and their nature, but they're also timeless in their doctrine, and they carry a specific sp scriptural meaning. And when we understand them, and we sing them with a heart of worship, or we sing them with a heart of praise, or we sing them with a heart of prayer, they can actually minister to us in a greater, greater way when we understand the truth that ba was based on the writing of that particular song. This particular song carries that, here I raise mine Ebenezer, because that word Ebenezer carries the idea of a stone of help. That's why he said that. I'm going to set a stone here, and it's going to signify that here is where the Lord helped us. Now I want you to understand something about the Bible tonight. Setting up memorial stones to commemorate some important event was a common practice in the Bible. In fact, you could probably think of a few. Uh, when Joshua crossed at the Jordan River, if you'll remember that, it was a similar crossing like that of the Red Sea, but it was not exactly the same. Remember the crossing at the Red Sea? Moses led that, and Moses with his staff parted those waters, and they walked across on dry ground. But it was different at the crossing of the Jordan as the nation of Israel was now officially entering into the promised land. Remember, God did not part those waters until the priests actually put their feet in the water. Once they did, then the water parted and they walked across on dry ground like before. But Joshua said, hey, while the waters are parted, I want you to take 12 stones and right here in the middle of the bank, I want you to put 12 stones commemorating the fact that we, the nation of Israel, 12 tribes, walked across on dry ground through the Jordan River. And so they did that. But when they got to the other side, Joshua said, I also want to take 12 more stones and set up a memorial on this side of the bank because it's important. We saw the parting. We walked across on dry ground. And so we commemorated it by putting stones. But I, I want to put 12 stones on the bank because someday our kids are going to come through here. And our kids are going to see those 12 stones and they're going to say, what meaneth these stones? What's the memorial for? What does that signify? And we are going to tell our story that God gave us this land and God parted these waters and we walked across on dry ground. You might even think that later in the same period of history in Israel, there was a man named Achan. And if you remember, God said, when you come in and you uh, uh, take over uh, Jericho, don't take any spoils, don't take anything with you. But Achan got greedy. He saw some gold and he saw some silver. And I always kind of get a chuckle when I read that story. It says he took some Babylonian garments. I always thought to myself, what are you going to do with those? You're not a, from Babylon. You're not, you, you, I mean, you're not going to be able to wear these things. Everybody's going to see what you got. It'd be the equivalent of me stealing a nice dress from Dillard's or something and, and, and trying to put it in my closet. I, I don't know what I would do with it. I say, you say, well, in this particular culture, you, you can wear a dress. No, 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 you still can't. That would be weird. But anyway, uh, uh, I wondered what he would do with that. And of course, he took those things and the judgment of God fell on the nation of Israel and, and, and he was judged for it. Now, remember, his punishment became death. 
And they stoned him to death. And then when he was dead, they covered his, his body with a memorial of stones. And what it did is it signified God's judgment on disobedience. And again, it was a memorial and a reminder, hey, here's what God did at the bank when we put these 12 stones. But hey, this pile of rocks here is showing us, hey, you better obey the Lord or there are consequences to your choices. And so, again, this was not an uncommon practice in Israel. This particular stone commemorated Israel's victory over the Philistines. We just read about that, right? They were having church. The Philistines gathered around them. They continued with their sacrifice and their worship of God. But God sends this thunderous noise and it scares the Philistines and they're discomfited and they turn and run away and God delivered them in that. And, and uh, so here Samuel says, well, let's set up a stone and we're gonna si we're, that's going to signify the fact that God helped us in our distress. Can I tell you tonight, short memories are not much encouragement in helping us appreciate what God has done for us. I hope that you have stories to tell of how God has blessed you and how God has helped you. I think every family in this room ought to have testimonies about how God has led and guided and provided for, for the family. My family has some. We sit around the table on, a, on a, a regular basis. And do you remember when God did this for us? Do you remember when God came through on that? Do you remember how God blessed on that? Listen, we need to have long memories when it comes to the blessing of God. But interestingly, Samuel set up the stone. You'll find this interesting. At the same place where Israel experienced defeat some 20 years earlier. We talked last night about how the glory had departed because of uh, Israel's disobedience and the problems that they had, where, where Samuel set up the stone was in the exact same place that all of that took, pl took place. It's called Ebenezer in chapter 4 and verse 1, but really it wasn't called that until Samuel had put that stone there commemorating what God had done. And he was making a statement. The statement he was making is, putting the stone where defeat had previously been is encouraging God's people that yes, there are consequences to our sin and God will judge our disobedience. But he was saying when we get right with God, God can reverse that situation and God can turn that thing around and I'm glad for that. I want you to understand tonight that Samuel, I believe, was a good man and he was a great leader. But he was not a great leader because he was a military strategist. If you study the nation of Israel, you're going to know that they had some people like that. Joshua was a great military strategist. You're going to find that David was good at those kind of things. David was good at military strategy. Remember when he was on the run from Saul? He kind of supplemented his living by strategizing battles against the Philistines. And he, he was a great military mind and leader. But Samuel was not a military mind. Samuel was not a, not a political mind either. You're going to find people like Solomon. Solomon was a great political. You might not agree with all of his tactics, but he was good at politics. I mean, he, he made peace with all the nations around him. So Israel knew what it was like to have military leaders and political leaders. But you know what separated Samuel? And this is what I appreciate about Samuel is Samuel, he didn't lead them with military strategies and political prowess. He led Israel in righteousness. And he said, listen, we've just got to get back to God. All those other things will take care of themselves. And he, he knew that if Israel would just be right with God, then Israel would have God's help. And I want you to know tonight, I believe that the nation of Israel needed a Samuel. 
And so that's exactly what God gave them. He gave them a Samuel. He gave them a spiritual leader that was going to say, hey folks, here's what we've got to do. We don't need to reorganize. We don't need to strategize. We don't need to do all of these fancy things. You know what we just need to do? We need to turn our hearts back to God. And I want you to know tonight, I understand we've got political stress in our, in our nation. We've got, really, we've got political and military stress worldwide right now. You're, you're reading about that and hearing about that. I heard people talking about it as they were coming in here tonight. And, and I'm not saying that we don't need political uh, di diplomacy. And I'm not saying we don't need military strategy. I, I'm not saying that those things have no place. But I'm telling you tonight, speaking in this church, in this congregation, you know what America needs and what God's people need more than anything? They just need to turn their hearts back to God. And I promise you that if any church or any people or any individual will turn their hearts back to God, God's help and God's blessing will come once again. And so I want you to see tonight, I want to give you three steps towards spiritual restoration. Or, or in this context tonight, we could call it revival because that's what it is. That's what they experienced here in this text. And I want you to see three steps toward this spiritual restoration. Number one, if we want to turn our hearts back to God, and have God's blessing on us once more. Let's put it in the context of this church congregation. Number one, we got to confess our sin. Let me turn your attention to verse 3. And Samuel spake unto the house, of the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. Do you see what he said? If you want to return and get your heart right with God, the first thing you've got to do is put away the strange gods. Now, if you know anything about the Bible and you know anything about the nation of Israel, you know that idolatry was really their besetting sin. This was something that they struggled with all the time. I mean, again and again and again, they would turn to idolatry and come back to God and turn to idolatry and come back to God, and it was a real, real problem. You say, what exactly was their idolatry? Of course, idolatry can come in a lot of different forms, of course, but I think we can boil it down to this. Here's what they struggled with. They wanted to conform to the culture around them. When they were in Egypt, they struggled with this. When they moved into the land of Canaan, they struggled with this. When they had possessed their own nation and set up, they still had a problem of trying to conform to the culture around them. And over the last 20 plus years in this text, what they had done is they had taken upon themselves the Canaanite lifestyle and the Canaanite way. And God, remember, he has called his people. I, I don't want you to be like every other nation. I don't want you to think like everybody else. I don't want you to behave like everybody else. I want you to be a distinct nation, a peculiar people that is going to represent me to the rest of the world. And can I tell you tonight, that application applies to us as well. Isn't it true that that is exactly what has happened to the church? Let's just talk in the Western world, in America, that what has happened is the world has permeated in through the church, and the church has become more and more and more like the world. They have adopted the thinking of the world, the ways of the world, the fashions of the world. We have constantly had this struggle. We have a tendency to love the world and the things of this world. It's something that we still struggle with ourselves. Listen, I preach to our church all the time. I, I grew up, I, I don't mind hard preaching. I, I, I personally like it. I like for a guy to say what he means and means what, mean what he says. I mean, tell it to me straight. I, I mean, that's just what I, I, I personally like that. And I've heard some very forceful, strong preaching before in my day. And, and, and again, it doesn't bother me. 
But I've heard a lot of people preach against what you wear and what you watch and, and, and those kind of things. And, and listen, I think there's a place for that. But I think a lot of, in the past, what, wor- what people have attacked worldliness and what they've said is like, here's what you, how, how you dress, man. That's a form of worldliness. And the entertainment that you watch and the music that you listen to, oh, those things are worldly. And they're right. They, they are right. And that, that's true. But here's what concerns me more about my church than those kind of external things. There's a place to talk about that, and I think, honestly, I believe there needs to be more preaching about it, to be, to be quite frank. But, but here's what I, I fear more, is the philosophy of the world that has crept in unaware, the rudiments of the world, as the Bible says, that has affected the thinking of God's people. Listen, God's people overall seem to have learned the world's ideas about dating, marriage, divorce, sex. We've adopted the same thinking of the world. That's not what God has for us. Listen, I've noticed in my church, I, I noticed people raising their kids the same way that the world is raising their kids. Almost as if they are clueless about what the Bible says about disciplining and training children. They, they have no clue about it. We have adopted the same ideas about self-esteem and me first ideas. Listen, I'm telling you, just recently I was considering enrolling my kids in a, in a camp for a, a, a well-known Christian uh, organization. And this is exactly what they said on their website about their camps. Camp as unique as you are. Now again, I'm not attacking that organization and I'm not trying to be be nitpicky, but I'm just saying, to me that sounds like the philosophy of our world that says it's all about you and what do you want and how can we tailor things for you? Really, that's the thinking of the world and we have embraced it and we have marketed it and we have implemented it in our own ministries. We could talk about fashion and entertainment and how the church today is even struggling with the idea of is it okay to consume and drink alcohol. We can talk about how many people in the so-called church have have compromised on their view of homosexuality or have embraced some of the controversy of the racial tension. Even I've seen feminism creep into the church and certainly, certainly materialism has taken a hold on a lot of the people in the church. Do you understand tonight that what Samuel did is he said, listen, folks, if we're going to turn our hearts to God, we got to get rid of our sin. And what that includes is we can't be like the nations around us. We must be like the nation God has called us to be. Samuel called to them, put away your false gods and confess your idolatry as sin. And I want you to notice what the nation of Israel did. Did you see in verse 6? And they gathered together, and toward the end of that verse it says, we have sinned against the Lord. If you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle that phrase. We have sinned against the Lord. Did you notice in that terse statement, here's exactly what they did. They did not try to excuse their sin or justify their sin. They just confessed it. And I like that. Because most of us, that's what we do. We try to excuse it. We we try to justify it. We tried to say, why? well, I know it's wrong, but there was no but in their statement. We were wrong. We did the wrong thing. We turned our hearts after the wrong gods, false gods that are no gods. We were wrong, and there is no justification, and there is no excuse for what we did. We have sinned against the Lord. That's a great example for us. Because I've, I heard this quote and I thought it was good. Many blush to confess their faults who never blush to commit them. 
And friend, we are living in a world, and it's nothing new, nothing new under the sun in what I'm about to say. We're living in a world where people are, are proud of their sin, and they are ashamed to even confess it, and it should be the opposite. See, God says we need to confess our sins. We don't try to conceal them. Do you know the Bible says that whosoever confesseth this sin and forsaketh this sin shall obtain mercy? But the person that, that, that tries to conceal it and hide it, oh, he'll not find mercy. Most of us, that's what we do. We just try and conceal it. Hope nobody notices it. Just kind of forgive and forget, move on. You know what another thing our culture likes to do? We like to popularize it. Listen, I don't care what the latest Gallup poll says. Right is still right and wrong is still wrong. And it doesn't matter if the percentage of Americans now think it's okay to do this or it's okay to do that. Listen, that's not the issue. It doesn't matter how popular something becomes. What did God say about it? And by the way, it doesn't matter if they legalize it or not. There are a lot of things that are legal that you can never moral, make moral. You can make it legal, but you can't make it moral. These folks confessed it. Confessed it. Israel had finally realized that their own unconfessed sin was the real problem, and they accepted responsibility for their own actions and their own attitudes. Now, I want to just challenge you tonight, because I'm challenged by this. As I was studying and preparing this afternoon, I just searched my own heart about this. You know, we often try to control what we can't control, and then we turn around and don't control the things we can control. There are a lot of things in this world I can't control. Listen, you know what, tonight, I can't control whether you listen to this sermon or respond to this truth. I can't control that. But you know what I can control? I can control whether I deliver the truth. I can control whether I'm obeying the truth myself. I can control the spirit in which I give the truth. There are a lot of things like I cannot control the responses of other people to my actions. But I can control my own actions and my own attitudes. And that's exactly what these people did. God would not deliver Israel from the Philistines while they served Philistine gods. He just wouldn't do it. So Samuel said, first thing, verse 3, you want to return to the Lord with all your heart? Put away the strange gods. I want you to see, secondly, not only do you need to confess your sins, but secondly, cleanse your heart. Did you see what he says there? And prepare your hearts. Prepare your hearts. Did you know that the leading cause of death in America is heart disease? There are over 600,000 bypasses every year in the United States of America. But I would say to you tonight, the spiritual condition of the heart is just as vital. We saw that on Sunday morning when we looked at Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the sower. And the soil is the condition of your heart. Listen, friend, that is so important to whether or not you are going to experience and enjoy spiritual revival this week. And I want to just remind you, the longer ice freezes, the harder it is for it to be broken. You all are from Cleveland, uh, Cleveland area or the northern Ohio. Boy, you know what snow and ice and cold is like. And I'll tell you, the longer ice freezes, the harder it becomes. Now, I think sometimes our hearts can become the same way. The Bible says that the greatest command in all of the Word of God, you can sum up all the commands in the Bible with this one. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. Yes, we need to deal with the physical sins in our life. That's why he started and said, put away the strange God. But he turns and he says, not only do you need to deal with the physical acts that you're doing that are wrong, you need to deal with the spiritual attitudes that are a problem in your life as well. Samuel commanded them to prepare and deal with their heart. Somebody define the heart this way. I think it's an easy way to remember it, and it's a good way. It is your feeler, your thinker, and your chooser. 
It's what God has given you, it's a, the emotions, it's the way you, 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 you uh, think about things and the choices with your will that you make. And I'll tell you, it's not always appealing to us to deal with the heart of the issue. See, we oftentimes are, are prepared to deal with the head. It's the intellect. I, I tell our folks all the time, there's no virtue in being stupid. God gave you a brain, you ought to use it, develop it. Listen, I hope that you, you're a reader and you're a thinker. You learn discernment in your life. And we, we, we need more people that will do that. Uh, there's, by the way, there's nothing wrong with being an educated individual. I mean, don't let education become your God, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with developing the thinker, developing the, the intellect and preparing the head. And a lot of times it's very easy for us to also prepare the hands to deal with the physical because we can put our hands on it. We're, we are kind of visually oriented people, and so we, we understand that. There's nothing wrong with preparing the head and the hands, but, but we need, also need to prepare the heart because the heart addresses the spiritual needs of men, and those, my friend, are the most important. I think that we're in a struggle in America today because we're trying to solve spiritual problems politically. And you're never going to solve spiritual problems politically. Never. That's why I've even seen some people, when their candidate didn't get voted in, they seem to fall apart. Listen, our hope should have never been in a candidate. Because no candidate is going to solve the spiritual issues of God's, uh, of God's creation. None. We're broken, unredeemed, sinful people, and we need a Savior. And that's the only thing that's going to change them. So he says, deal with the heart. Deal with the heart. Isn't that what James 4, 8 says? Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. That phrase, double-minded, means the two-faced or hypocritical mind. And So he says, deal with the heart. Because sometimes we can do a certain action, but our heart can be far from it. And he says, deal with that. You see, if you want to get close to God, you have to desire him. You have to want him. You have to long for him. You think about it tonight. When my eyes are right, they're sensitive to light. When my ears are right, they're sensitive to sound. When my tongue is right, it is sensitive to taste. For some of you that may have had coronavirus and lost your smell and your taste, you understand how odd that can be. Something's not right. I'm not sensitive to, to the right taste. But I want to tell you tonight, when your heart is right, you are sensitive to God. We've got to get our heart right with Him. It starts with, first of all, confessing our sins, and then it's cleansing our heart. But I want you to see, lastly, lastly, I want you to see committing to God. Did you see in verse 3 there, he says, if you do return to the Lord with all your hearts, first of all, you've got to put away the stranger, you've got to confess your sin. Then you've got to prepare your heart, you've got to cleanse your heart. And he says, and serve him only. Commit to God. So here's what takes place. I want you to see this. Israel gathered in Mizpah to show their dedication to Jehovah. And to demonstrate their commitment to Jehovah, they did two things. They did two things. First of all, they gave a drink offering. I thought that that was interesting when I began to study this. I would, have, I would have expected them to not give a drink offering, but to give a sin offering, to give a guilt offering. 
You understand a, a guilt offering? We, we recognize that concept, that sacrifice in the Bible where they would take an innocent animal, they would sacrifice it on an altar, give its life to uh, atone for, to kind of give a covering to their sin temporarily. And so here Israel had sin, and so you would expect them to give a sin or a guilt offering. But instead what they did is they gave a, a drink offering, a burnt offering. And so what, what happened is this burnt offering and drink offering, they were more associated with praise and worship rather than with repentance. So that seemed odd to me. Do, do you remember, I think the best way we can understand a drink offering, do you remember that story about David's mighty men? And David stands out there and he says, oh man, if I could just, if I could just have a drink from the well of Bethlehem, oh man. And he's got some mighty men that overheard him say that. And so they snuck out and they went on secret operation and they got him some water from the well at Bethlehem. And they brought it back to him. And, and in that story, he does something very strange. He, he takes the water and instead of drinking it, he pours it out on the ground. I don't know about you, if I was one of those mighty men and I had just gone into enemy territory and I'd snuck in and I'd gone through all that extra effort to get, the, get that to him and I watched this man pour it out instead of drinking it, I, I would have, and these mighty men, they were tough, you remember, I probably would have punched David in the face. But when you understand what David was doing, it wasn't insulting, it wasn't ungrateful, it, it wasn't offensive what he did. He was saying, guys, what you gave me was worth so much. The sacrifice that you made to go through to this, how could, how could I take this? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give this to the Lord. And he poured it out and gave it completely to God. See, that's what a drink offering is. It's praise and worship. They would take an animal and they would completely consume that animal all the way up. It was a burnt offering. In a sin offering, they would take part of it and eat it. So they would sacrifice to the Lord and they would eat part of it. A burnt offering, it was like, no, we're just giving this all to God, and it would just be consumed completely. And then they would take some water or some wine signifying joy and gratefulness and celebration, and they would completely pour it out, just giving all the glory and all the thanks and all the praise to God. And so what they did here is they were committing everything to, to dedicating every precious commodity that they had they were giving it all to God. That's why it was significant in what they did. Notice what else they did. Not only did they have a drink offering, along with a burnt offering, they also fasted. Now, fasting is something that God's people don't do very much of today. In fact, I, I wouldn't ask you to testify this or raise your hand, but I wonder when the last time, if ever, some of us have fasted. What exactly is fasting? I think a lot of God's people misunderstand what fasting is. There is no power in just going without food. But what we are doing is we are telling God something. We're telling him, listen, I have needs in my life. And one of the needs in my life is for eating and sleeping. God designed our bodies that way. You have to recharge your battery by sleeping. And, and, and you have to refuel your body. By consuming food. God designed us that way. We must do that. But when we fast, what we are saying to God is, even though I have physical needs, such as eating and sleeping, and the Bible even includes sexual gratification in that as well, but the Bible is saying these physical needs that I innately have, they are secondary to the spiritual need that I have. 
And so here they are committing everything that they have to God, and they are saying the physical needs that we have are not anywhere close to the importance of the spiritual needs we have in our life. So I want you to see in verse 10, and as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. So what happens is they're beginning to repent. And when they begin to repent, listen to me, you can always expect God's enemy to attack you. Always. If through this meeting or through, through the next couple of weeks you decide, hey, I'm going to get more serious about my walk with God. I'm going to start reading my Bible more. I'm going to start spending time with prayer. I am going to have some time fasting. I, I am going to get serious about my faith. I'm going to be a greater witness than I have been. I am going to be more dedicated and committed to my faith. You can mark it down. You, you're going to experience some attack. It's not like Satan's going to say, well, that, man, I, I'll tell you what. Man, I'm glad, I I was hoping they wouldn't go to that meeting, but man, I I just lost that one. No, that's not the way this works. And the Philistines gather around, but but I thought it was so awesome that Samuel says, yeah, I know we got enemies rattling around out there, you can hear it, let's just keep having church. Did you see how God came through for them? I think what Samuel was doing in this case, he was doing something that Jesus taught us in the Gospel of Matthew. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things. They'll be taken care of. Samuel just carried on with the ceremony in spite of the problems, in spite of of the attack of the enemy. It seems to be a lesson on getting our priorities right, committing fully and completely selling out to our God. A couple years ago, I came across an article, a report from MSNBC. And I, I certainly don't endorse MSNBC at all, but... Uh, I thought it was a pretty interesting article. And in this article, they talked about what they called a brand new, uh, a new brand of, of vegetarians. A new brand of vegetarians. And uh, this, I began to read this article, and, and I'm not weighing in that. If you're a vegetarian, I don't want to offend you at all. Uh, but uh, I, I, I like to eat meat, all right. But anyway, I'm not, I'm not weighing in on that necessarily. But, but here, here's the thought. This quote got my attention. There was a lady in this article, her name is Christy Pugh, and this is what she said. I usually eat vegetarian, but I really like sausage. (laughs) Well, then you, pardon my bad grammar, then you ain't a vegetarian. But I thought was pretty interesting. What happened, this article went on to describe that all of the old vegetarians, like the real ones, were offended by this. They basically said, don't call yourself a vegetarian and then get up there and say you like sausage. How dare you? And so they were mad. They said, that's bad representation of vegetarians. And so we're demanding that you don't call yourself a vegetarian. Change your name. And so these new vegetarians started calling themselves, and maybe you've seen this, flexitarians. Flexitarians. You know what they're saying? Well, I normally eat vegetarian unless I really want to have a hamburger. I'm going to be vegetarian unless I have a hankering for meat or unless it's meat that I like. Well, again, pardon my bad grammar, you ain't a vegetarian. But I think that it's a good way to describe Christians when it comes to their commitment to Jesus and the Bible. There are a lot of people that say stuff like this. I mean, I've heard them say this. And by the way, Brother Smith, I I have felt sometimes I must have moron tattooed on my forehead because I hear 
Christians and church members tell me some of the most nonsensical things, and they must think I'm stupid enough that I believe the nonsense that's coming out of their mouth. And because I'm supposed to be gracious and kind and a nice pastor, that I smile at them and go, eh. but I'm thinking to myself, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody say. I've heard people say stuff like this. Well, I really love Jesus. I just don't really love church. Well, friend, I'm going to tell you tonight, you can love church without loving Jesus, but you cannot love Jesus without loving his church. Listen, if you really love Jesus, you're going to love church. People say, well, you know, I I love God and everything, but I'm just not really into the Bible. You don't don't want to hear what your God and your Savior has has said to you and told you and commanded you and taught you? You, Listen, that's... That's like saying, I'm a flexitarian. Well, you know, Jesus is first in my life, but I can't afford to give to him. Well, then he's not first in your life. <laughs> Amen. Well, I'm really a follower of Jesus Christ, but you know, this, this whole, all this holiness stuff, that just seems awful restricted to me. I mean, you know, a, a person's got to have some fun, you know. No, no, no. If you love Jesus, you want to refrain from sin. We're not saved by grace to indulge in sin. We're saved by grace to have victory over sin. Well, I really love Jesus. I'm just not much of a reader, you know. Well, why don't you learn how to read what he said? Listen, I don't care what you tell me. God chose to reveal himself through the medium of words, and that's what he's done. And we would behoove ourselves to start reading his book and paying attention to what he said and stop being a flexitarian Christian and start doing what God told us to do. Well, I tell you what, I really love Jesus and everything, but just don't you expect me to forgive that person that hurt me. Well, wait a second. The Bible says, be ye kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We don't get to pick and choose the things that we like to, like to obey in the Bible. I was telling your pastor today as we were fellowshipping at lunch, there are a few things in the Bible that I don't like. And I hope that doesn't bother you, but I don't like what it says. I wish it said something different. I don't like that. And I'm going to tell you, I don't get to pick and choose. I'm not a flexitarian. I want to be completely sold out to God. You see, discipleship is more than just promised loyalty. It's not just because you went to a meeting and you you went to a camp and you sang, you know, though none go with me, still I will follow. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Hey, it's not just because you promised loyalty. It is also because you practiced loyalty. And Samuel said to them, listen, you, you want to turn your heart back to God? Then confess your sins, get your heart right, cleanse your heart, and totally sell out to your God. And that's what they did. You're going to know in the nation of Israel they didn't keep that permanently. They had their ups and downs and this isn't going to be the final story in the nation of Israel. But it's a great model. It's a great model of what they should have been doing. Friend, I'm just telling you, if Bailey Road Baptist Church wants to see the blessing, the provision and the glory of God to to come on us and to see something great happen, and friend, I think we're going to have to follow this model. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Question number one, what is it that you need to change your mind about and confess to God? Honestly, I grow weary of God's people sitting around complaining about how bad it is. As if, if we're the only culture that's ever existed that had moral problems. Can I tell you something? We're not. 
And there have been cultures far, far worse in their morality than ours. And it's time that God's people stop moaning and groaning and complaining and talking about how bad it is out there and start dealing with our own sin. What is it that we need to confess? There used to be an old song. It's, a, it's an old song. I haven't heard it in church in years and years and years. And I'm not saying we should sing it, but it's a good old song. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister. It's me. What sins do I need to confess? What do I need to turn back to the Lord in? Let me ask you a second question. What is the condition of your spiritual heart like? As Jesus said, the most important command, number one, is to love God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind. And I'm telling you tonight, I stand convicted with you. There isn't a single person in here that would say, I mean, you came on a Monday night, surely you would stand up and say, I love, I love God, I love Jesus. You're here on a Monday night, I, I appreciate that. They're not a single person that wouldn't say, I, I could love Jesus more. I could love Jesus more. I was so gripped one time I was reading a story about the old, old preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I want to love God so much that if I look to the heavens and I say, God, I love you, I would hear him say, yes, Charles, I know. I wonder about me. What about you? Does God know you love him like that? Here's my final question for you tonight. How committed are you to the Lord Jesus Christ? Again, I'm not chiding you. I'm not shaming you. Again, I applaud you for being in church on a Monday night. Thank you for demonstrating that commitment. But we know if we're ever going to make an impact and difference, we've got to be completely and wholly sold out to God. Let's quit trying to put one foot in the world and one foot in our faith and just put everything in the basket of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.